Please take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5. We've been working our way through 1 Peter and we come to the next to the last paragraph in 1 Peter. So we're nearing the end, finish up next week. Thank you for your kindness in uh, encouraging me as we have worked our way through this important book. As we've said uh, before, we'll say it again, I'm convinced that the last verse of the preceding paragraph, chapter 4, verse 19, is uh, the point of the book. He is trying to encourage or convince uh, those who are in the midst of sorrow or persecution, difficulty of various kinds, to trust God in the midst of their lives, to believe God, to rely upon God. It's uh, a reality that we cannot know everything that God is doing. Uh, We cannot cross every T, dot every I for God. God doesn't give us those things. They are, as we like to say, above our pay grade. The scripture says uh, that in spite of that, God expects us to love him and to follow him and to submit to him that he is the authority in our lives and that we are his followers. And I want to suggest to you this is good for us, not bad for us. It's good for you that you don't know everything. I'll just give you an illustration. If you knew what was going to happen Friday of this the coming week, Friday, you would begin to obsess now. You would say, well, I've I've got to work on that. I've got to fix that. I've got to get ready for that. I've got to change that. I've got to prepare for that. I got... You would begin to talk about Friday here on Sunday. And the reality is God wants you worrying on, working about today on Sunday, not Friday. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Friday's going to come, Lord willing. And when it does, they give you the grace for Friday. But you won't get Friday's grace until Friday. So if you're borrowing Friday's trouble today... You've got Sunday's grace. Sunday's grace is different than Friday's grace. So you don't need to know all this stuff that you think you need to know. You don't need to know everything that God is doing in your life. You just need to know that God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? We rely upon God. We're to walk by faith in God, trusting him. Every one of us have done this all our lives. We were born into families where we had parents, and not a one of us knew anything about parenting. And I remember when I was just six weeks old. No, I don't. But I remember that I wasn't worried about anything except eating and sleeping and maybe one or other, two other things we shouldn't talk about. That's all I was worried about. And it was fine. But it's only as you sort of navigate through life that you think you have a right to know everything including the future and the whys and the wherefores. And I want to suggest to you that the book of 1 Peter reminds us that we are in the loving hands of God. And that is the most important thing you can know today. Commit your way to him. So chapter 5 begins with a transition. It says, so. So. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, 
not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You might think, well, it's just interesting. We spent four chapters talking about persecution and the problems associated with difficulties in our lives and different kinds of sorrows. And now all of a sudden he turns to the elders and says, you elders, I've got a job for you. You may think that's a, kind of an awkward transition, but I want to revisit the preceding verse, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. You see, the point of all of this is the care of your souls. Ultimately, we, we care a whole lot about our human lives. We care about our, our health. We care about our relationships. We care about our living accommodations. We care about our cars and our clothes and our uh, retirement accounts, and we care about all these things, and I'm not suggesting those things don't matter, not at all. But in the end, I promise you, friend, that after you live your allotted period of time in this life, you're going to leave every bit of that behind. I don't care what kind of house you had, it's behind you. I don't care what kind of car you had, where you're going, it's going to be a junker. I don't care what kind of clothes or any other thing that has brought you joy, tangibly in this life. These are wonderful things in this world, but they are not a part of the world to come. As a result, what's going with you is your soul. That's the substance of really who you are. It's your identity. It's your soul. So what matters to God, not whether you're tall or short or wide or thin, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, male or female, slave or free, those things are categories that men use to describe one another, but they are not the categories of your eternal soul. They are not. So it is your soul that God is concerned about. So let's begin there. If you're not concerned about your soul today, then I want to assure you that your soul is in jeopardy. More jeopardy than you understand. You're going to die without regard to your soul, and you're going to be banished, the Bible says, to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment, eternal damnation. We can summarize that place and call it hell. You're going to hell if you do not care for your eternal soul. I'd say the stakes are a little higher as regards your soul than as regards your living accommodations in this world. So it is your soul that matters. So when God now in chapter 5 moves Peter to talk about elders, what he's doing is he's entrusting this soul care to human instruments who are going to keep before you the importance of your soul care. It turns out that church... It's not ultimately about your happiness or your satisfaction with, you know, the music or the preaching or, or the conditions of the room or the color of the carpet or 
or a thousand other things that we can obsess about. It's not about what brand of coffee we sell or give away or anything else. It's not what church is. It's not about just hanging out with your people, your friends. It's a part of that. It's important. We're going to see here in a minute. But that's ultimately not what it's about. It's about the care of your souls. I uh, liken it to a bit of an analogy, if you'll permit this analogy. I know every earthly metaphor for heaven and for the care of God has flaws in it. I admit this one does, but it's the best I got this morning. We would all agree that God has a a special affection for orphans, those who've lost their families, their parents. Because it's nigh impossible for a child to prosper in this life without a family. Just, Just impossible. They don't have people to shepherd them, to love them, to care for them, to protect them, to provide for them. They become human instruments of perversion. They, they, they become trafficked in various ways and hurt and wounded and destroyed and tossed around as property. God has a special place for orphans and he intends for the church in particular to be an asset to human orphans. Well, I would ask the same thing about those who categorize themselves as his children spiritually. Does God care about your physical life? Absolutely. He gives you a family and he counts on other resources to be brought to bear in the event that you lose your family. God intends for other resources, physical resources to be brought to bear in your life to care for your physical life. What about your spiritual life? Does God care about your spiritual life? The answer, of course, is yes. And how has God ordained a resource for you to provide for your spiritual life? The answer is the church. Now, it's, it's chic today, it's vogue today to bash the church. You know, the, the church is a bunch of money grabbers. The church is a bunch of hypocrites. The church is, and you just fill in the blank with your, your pejorative statements. It's, that's always been that way. You can't read the testimony of the Apostle Paul and recognize that he was not an early adopter of the notion of persecuting people who believe that the souls of man congregating together should be Uh, mocked or humiliated. He arrested such people and threw them into jail. So it's always been this way. The notion that somehow we're going to become mainstream with the culture is not biblical. It's just not in the Bible. But it is biblical that we recognize that as Christian people, God intends for us to be a part of a spiritual family. So he says here in verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will, should entrust their souls to their creator. And then immediately he says, so you elders pay attention to this stuff. Our elders met last week and I told them in our meeting, I said, men, we've come finally to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's going to be the text this week. I said, so keep your nose clean between now and Sunday. (laughs) Button down, straighten up, and listen up. You might say, well, this is a paragraph about elders and what elders are supposed to be doing. That's got nothing to do with me. I'm not an elder. Well, (laughs) then why did Peter write this to people who are not elders? Because they should know. 
that there are people who are responsible for shepherding their souls. The purpose of the church is not to just take care of physical needs. It is that. We, we do want to do that, we, and we do that. We're going to continue to do that. And we put a lot of energy in that, a lot of money into that, a lot of, a lot, a lot of care into that. We're going to take care of people's physical needs. Somebody needs food, shelter, and clothing, we're going to resource them best we know how. But at the end of the day, that's not our agenda. It's much bigger than that. It's much grander, more grand than that. Because our agenda is the care of their souls. What really matters is whether or not they're bound for heaven. Whether or not they know the Savior and they have calibrated their life in conjunction with the expectations of what it means to be a follower of Christ. There are a lot of things that conspire against the church. There are scandals in the church and there's hypocrisy in the church. And then there's, of course, there's COVID in the church. A lot of things have worked to sort of punish the notion that church is valuable, that church is important. Who needs elders? After all, I don't even need the church. Well, it turns out if you, if you don't need the church, you're in disobedience to God. Because God intends for his children to be cared for. And God intends for the church to be the vehicle through which his children experience the care of their souls. That's exactly what he's talking about in verse 19 of the preceding chapter. So, he gives us three things to remember about the church in this short paragraph. And I'll offer them for our help today. Number one, he says, there in verse 2 following, that we are to remember the responsibilities of the elders. Now, some of us come from backgrounds where we didn't have elders. I grew up in a church that didn't have elders, worked on church staffs that didn't have elders, and so forth. And yet, here it has, elders. What's interesting is that elders is not a strange word in the New Testament, as we have discovered in our church. And 12 years ago, we went to uh, this format because we wanted to be true to the Scripture. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 14, 15, 16, 20, and 21. Six of the 28 chapters of Acts all reference various churches, not the same, various churches of different kinds, all and their responsibilities to their elders. Luke, Paul, Peter, and James, who wrote virtually all of the New Testament, all of the New Testament almost exclusively outside of the Gospels, all reference elders in churches. It's not foreign to the Bible. It may be foreign to our history, maybe foreign to our experience, but it's not foreign to the Bible at all. And God intends for elders, as he says here, to remember their responsibilities. And he gives us clear teaching on what their responsibilities are with a goal toward the care of souls. So think, what, what, is a shepherd, what does a elder do in the care of my soul, your soul? Here it is. Verse 2, number 1, shepherd. Shepherd the flock. Now this is the verb form of the noun. The word is pastor. So the word shepherd just means pastor. Pastor means shepherd. This is the verb form. Shepherd the flock. Pastor the flock of God that is among you. 
So it is God's will, God's plan, that soul care be a part of an elder's responsibility. That the elders here should pay close attention to the care of souls. So your soul matters. And it matters to the leadership of this church. So we, we care about the, the ditches that you get into, the trials that you get into, the sorrows that you experience, the transitions of life that you're navigating. We care about the good times and the bad times. We care about the things that frighten you, the, the things that discourage you. We, we care about the things that separate you from the church. We care about those things. Because this is God's family. And God intends for his family to be shepherded. Now, it's not exclusively or totally the responsibility of the elders, but it is, first of all, the responsibility of the elders to shepherd the flock. It's the same verb that Jesus uses in John 21 when he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. To which he says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. The word tend there is the word shepherd. Care for, pastor, shepherd, my sheep. And here's Peter writing this letter decades later and encouraging the elders, even as the Lord encouraged him to shepherd the flock, to pay attention to the soul care. So the elders are responsible to God for that. There's a second thing mentioned, verse 2, and that is to exercise oversight. Exercise oversight. Now, the English word that we get from this, this is the Greek word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal. It means oversight. It's often translated as a noun. It's translated by the word bishop. I want you to note three offices that are mentioned here by their function and by their office. Elders, pastors, and bishops, and it's all the same person. These are not different people. So he, has, he uses the title elder, a reference to the office, and then their tasks, verse 2, shepherd, and secondly, give oversight. Oversight. Somebody has got to make sure that we're moving in the right direction, make sure that we're not off in a spiritual train wreck somewhere, that we're not heretical, that we're not in, somehow enduring false teaching. Somebody's got to guard the teaching. Somebody's got to guard the, the witness of the church and so forth. Somebody's got to give oversight to that. And that's the elders. Why? Because in the midst of life, we get, suffer persecution, we have hardship, we have difficulties in our life. What happens to us? We drift away. We fade away. We get hurt. We get wounded. We, we get discouraged. We get lonely. The flesh takes over. We submit to that. Who's supposed to shepherd us? Who's supposed to care for our souls? Well, it begins with the elders. He gives a, a couple of caveats for that, verse 2. Not under compulsion, he says. Not under compulsion. Meaning, you don't have to do it. You know, elders don't have to be elders. We don't, we don't require anybody. We, uh, we, we nominate men for for elder in our church. You, you as a congregation nominate for us to consider elders. And every year we consider those nominations. And invariably the people you nominate don't want the job. So, well, he's, he'd make a good elder. Yeah, but he doesn't want the job. Well, I think he ought to take the job. Well, it's not up to you. 
It's not under compulsion. Well, I'm his mother. I think he should be an elder. Well, it's not up to you. Not under compulsion, because we don't need people doing that. Another sort of illustration comes to mind here. You know, maybe you've heard about the fact that that Russia's having a hard time filling out their soldier uh, needs against Ukraine in the war. And so they just conscript all these young men. Well, the minute they announced that, if you're following the news, many of the men who were aged to be conscripted just left the country. They fled. Why? Because they didn't want to go into a war that they were not interested in. They didn't didn't want to go die for that. That's kind of the way it is when you force a man to be an elder who doesn't want to be an elder. It feels like you're putting me in the battle that I don't want to be in. I don't have any energy for that. I don't have any interest in that. So that's not why elders are called or, or serve. We want men who do so willingly, verse 2 says, willingly. They have an eagerness about that. And I want to encourage you to recognize that the men who serve here uh, do so eagerly. We actually ask them if they're eager to do it. And if they're not, then we don't ask them again right now. We ask them later when they might be eager. But nobody is serving now who's not eager to serve because you don't even have any idea how complex the job is. You don't have any idea how challenging it can be to put up with sheep that want to keep jumping the fence. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Secondly, not greedily. He says there at the end of verse 2, not for shameful gain. That's the word for greed, but eagerly. Uh, This is the requirements again and again of those who would serve as elders. Uh, The pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are written to pastors, Timothy and Titus, about how to train pastors. So it's Paul, a pastor, writing to pastors about how to train pastors. And so in 1 Timothy 3 and again in Titus 1, there are credentials for what it means to be a shepherd or a pastor or an elder. And here is Titus 1.7, for instance. For an overseer, remember overseer just is the word bishop. For a bishop, pastor, shepherd, same person. As God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. If he's in it for the money, he's not in it. We don't want him, don't need him. You know, that's one of the criticisms the culture likes to throw at the church. Because the, the, the culture finds it most easy to complain about money. And the, the reason for that, the source of all of that is envy. You understand this, do you not? The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. If there is anything that's to the core of a man who is not walking with God, it is that he is envious, that he is jealous, and that he's covetous. This is the nature of the flesh. I want to encourage you to recognize that that's the way the world criticizes Criticize people who are in it for the money. Invariably, you, you, you hear the world 
criticize, and, and eventually they'll say, and, he, and, and in spite of all of that, you know, he gets X amount of money, and so forth. And we, we're fascinated with what people make. We, we, we care about what celebrities make and what kind of house they live in in Malibu or whatever. We care about uh, athletes, how much money they make, coaches, how much money they make. We care about other people, and all these things. Well, what kind of money do they make and so forth? Because money is a way to, to determine whether people are significant in the culture. Money is also a way for us to mock people and say, you supposedly are significant and you're, you have this amount of money, but, but you, are, you are not faithful. Money becomes, if you will, the, the, the hatchet that the culture layers against the church again and again and again, hacking the church to pieces so as to say the church is not faithful. So it's, it is a, it's an easy uh, accusation. It doesn't have to be true, but it's an easy way to mock the church. So to put an end to that, we are to make sure that the men who serve as elders are not susceptible to that. They're not tempted by that. And we're to work in such a way that the controls here uh, don't, don't permit that. I say this all the time. Our, our elders here have zero access to money. Zero. They do not handle money. They don't control uh, you know, what day we pay bills or whether or not we should, are obligated, you, you do that. You, you, we have a budget. You adopt a budget. They prepare a budget, suggest it to you. You vote it. Then they help us manage that and so forth. But you have the controls on all that. And our elders don't have any control over that except as you give them control. That's it. Me, I'm, I'm completely in the dark. We hire people to do that so as to keep me out of that. The last thing you want is me involved in any of that. Why? Because it's a temptation. You don't want people to be tempted. You don't. People who you want to trust, people that you want to entrust your souls to, you don't want them to fall or to be compromised. So elders should be scrutinized before they're given the job, and they should be scrutinized while they're in the job. They should be scrutinized because this matters. It matters to the world and it matters to those of us who are not merely in the world. So not greedily, he says. And then thirdly, verse 3, not domineering. They do have oversight. They have responsibility for leadership, but not domineering. This is the way the world operates. In Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called his disciples and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the 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 worldly people lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority. How do you know a man's a great, a big deal? Because he's got authority. That's the way the world keeps score. He's a big deal. It's political season. We're electing uh, politicians this Tuesday. And much will be made about the fact that these people have authority or power and so forth. And as they should, somebody has to have authority. Somebody has to have power. Somebody has to have the responsibility for these things. But ultimately, that's not the ambition of elders, not domineering over those in your charge. Listen, I'm in charge here. You're going to do what I say. That is not the spirit of Christ. That is not the spirit of the elders of this church or any other church doing what it should be. So we are to remember the responsibilities of elders. Lastly, he says, verse 3, 
We are to be examples to the flock. This is the exhortation again and again in the scripture, that we are to be like Jesus. And those like Jesus get to serve then as an example to those who are considering Jesus or have considered Jesus and have embraced Jesus. And those who stand in the gap to provide the care of souls in particular are to reflect Jesus. Think again of the credentials offered for pastors or elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. It's not about skills. The only skill mentioned in the entire list is able to teach. That's it. When you're looking for an elder, he he must be able to teach. That's the only skill that he must have in the scripture. And the rest of it is character. He must not be greedy. He must not be a a woman chaser. He must not be addicted to much wine, etc., etc. He must not be uh, unkind or inhospitable, so forth. These are credentials of his character. Why, Why does that matter? Because if he's not a man of character, he's not an example of Christ. We are to point people to Christ. This is why men are disqualified. (coughs) Because being an example of Christ is not their priority. Why does this matter? Because we're talking about the care of souls. We're not just talking about where you're going to sleep tonight. We're not just talking about where your next meal is going to come from. We're not talking about whether you're going to get a job or whether you're going to have a retirement account. We're talking about the care of your eternal soul. Because life conspires to bang you around. And you will suffer. And you will be persecuted. And you will face challenges of all kinds. And you will find that life leaves bruises. And sometimes those bruises touch our very souls. And God has a plan to shepherd you when you find those difficulties. And it occurs in the church. The shepherding occurs in the church. Invariably, we get mad at God. And the closest example of God or the closest representation of God is the church. So if I'm going to jettison God, I'm going to jettison the church. Which is 100% the opposite plan that God intends. Secondly, we are to remember Christ's return, not just remember the responsibilities of elders, but we are to remember the return of Christ. Notice what he says, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, when the chief shepherd appears. Now, when is the chief shepherd going to appear? Well, reading the entire New Testament, we know this is a reference to the return of Christ. Christ has appeared once, And he will appear a second time. He's coming back. This is a reference to the return of Christ. So Peter is always pointing us to that. Why should we remember the responsibilities of the elders? Because ultimately we are accountable to Christ on his return. The parables point to his return and to our preparation for his return. Every time the Bible mentions the return of Christ, the exhortation is pay attention to your life. Pay attention. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now we referenced this last time and I want to reference it again in the off chance that you were asleep and not paying attention. 
When the Bible talks about the return of Christ, ultimately, that's always used in two ways, and they both exist every single time. It's a coin with two sides, the return of Christ. On the one side, it is, a, it is the return of Christ that is good news. It is good for those who are his people. Christ is coming to take us to glory. But it is also bad news, bad news for those who have refused Christ. If you are here today and you have never put your trust in Christ, we beg of you to consider the imminent return of Christ. How imminent? I don't know. But the imminent return of Christ, if you are not ready, then the return of Christ is not a peace or a comfort. It is not a source of God's love for you. It's going to be a source of God's judgment, and that judgment is eternal. Pay very close attention to your own preparation for the return of Christ. So the chief shepherd, when he appears, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to evaluate. He's going to evaluate who's with him and who's not. When he comes, you, meaning the, the church, will receive the unfading crown of glory. You, the church, will face the scrutiny of the return of Christ, and you will prosper in it. You will be blessed in it. But those who are outside Christ will not be blessed. They will be scrutinized and be found wanting, lacking. But what's interesting is, in the context of the elders, as I mentioned a week ago, the Bible is clear that judgment begins at the household of God. He's, he's mentioned that very phrase to us already in chapter 4. I said then, and I say again, that's probably a reference to Ezekiel chapter 9. Let me just remind you that Ezekiel has this vision. And he's explaining to the people of God how God would use Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and so forth, these pagan countries to judge his people. And in the, in the midst of that, he, Ezekiel, is telling his people that God is going to preserve a remnant, a remnant. And then the means whereby God is going to preserve this remnant, even in the midst of judgment, is that, that God is going to pour out his spirit upon them and, and so forth, and that he's going to begin this judgment process amongst those people who most closely identify with him. Now I want you to hear again Ezekiel 9 Verses 1 to 6. We'll have this on the screen. You follow along. So here's Ezekiel testifying of the vision of God. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. They went in and they stood beside the bronze altar. That's in the temple. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist, and he said to them, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And then this verse. 
and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. How important is the care of your soul? I want to suggest to you, most of us view church through a far too superficial lens. We think it's about superficial stuff. It's about who's there, what they do, how long they do it, when they let me out, whether they have good monkey bread, whether we like the band or not, choir or not. Do you really, do you really think that's like on the short list with God? I've heard a lot of bands. Our band's pretty good. But I don't really care if they're good or not. Drives Michael crazy. We pay a lot of money to have Michael. Way to go, Michael. But I don't care if they're any good. And I've heard a lot of preaching. And a lot of the preaching that I've heard in my life hasn't been real good. Some of it I preached. I was saved in a church where there wasn't really good preaching. I was raised and nurtured in churches that had a bunch of flawed people in them. And somehow, here I am. And here you are. Turns out God is greater than all the things that distract us from God. And sometimes even church and our view of church and our expectations of church distract us from God. Because we're pretty superficial. But you know how God takes people who are superficial and puts them in the gymnasium? He does it with suffering. We could give witness after witness after witness today of people in this room whose walk with God was changed for the better because of the tragedy or the sorrow or the difficulty that a faithful a faithful creator took them through
And the elders have to keep their eye on the ball. Because oftentimes, the sheep aren't paying attention. The elders have to remember that what's really going on is we're keeping all the sheep together until the chief shepherd gets here. We're not here for anything else. We're here to present the church to the one who owns it. Because in a day, in a week, in a month or a year or 10 or 20 or 30 or whenever, he's coming back. And he's not coming back because the band is great. Or the sermon was short. He's coming back because the blood of Jesus paid for his sheep. And every last single orphan child bought with the blood of Christ matters to the chief shepherd. We better have some elders and keep some elders who will take care of our souls. I must quit, but let me show you the third thing. We're not only to remember the responsibilities of the elders and to remember the return of Christ, but we're to remember the order of God. Notice what he says in verse 4, or rather verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That phrase, God opposed the proud, is a direct quote from Proverbs 3, 34, which says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. That is also quoted by the book of James, chapter 4, verse 6. He gives a greater grace to the humble. What is God doing? He's creating an order, elders and then those who are not. In this case, he lumps them all in a category called younger So you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Submit to the elders. Why? He's not intimidated by that word. That bugs our modern ears, but it doesn't bug Peter. It doesn't bug Paul. It doesn't bug Jesus. Jesus submits to the Father. Then he expects his disciples to submit to him. Those who follow Christ are all called to submit to him. We've been encouraged already in this letter. Wives, submit to husbands. Slaves, submit to your Masters, etc. He uses that word. He's very comfortable with that word. It doesn't mean a thing angrily. It, in fact, means the reverse of that. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. So there is this dance or tension that exists in submission and humility. So you have, an, you have a person who has oversight, leadership responsibility, but has to do so as a servant of the chief shepherd. So he must hold on to that with humility. I'm not in charge. Christ is in charge. 
So you must hold on to that assignment with humility and you must serve with the same affections and the same tenderness and the same brokenness that you would expect of one who follows Christ. But then there are those who are not elders and they have a responsibility also to be subject to this oversight chain that God has built. Why? Because God intends for someone to be held accountable. And ultimately, that's going to be the elders. You don't know this, but I'll tell you. When we ordain elders, I tell every last one of them, James 3.1 says, let not many of you be teachers. And by the way, all elders are teachers. Let not many of you be teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. It is harder to be an elder on judgment day than a non-elder. On top of that, you're required to be an example to the flock. There are people that now have permission to eyeball you in ways they didn't before. Now they do. They're expected to do that. And you're expected to carry a different responsibility in shepherding the church. No pressure. You want the job? Well, it's a big job. And remember, it's the, it's the order of God because... God does not intend to have orphan children. He intends for them to congregationalize in churches where they can prosper. Their souls can prosper. And one day when the Lord returns, the chief shepherd, they'll be ready. Use the word humility. Pardon this analogy, but humility, friend, is the secret sauce. You know why this church is strong? Humility. That's right. And we said, Brother Greg, we're strong because we believe the Bible. Yeah, that's humility. Humility under the Bible. The Bible has authority. The Bible can tell me what to do and tell you what to do. And the sooner we adjust to that, the better. Tell me what the Bible says. Let's go do it. We submit to the Bible with humility. We submit to one another. My agenda is my agenda. But it's not more important than your agenda. Together, we lump all our agendas together and we say, where's God? What's God doing? Let's figure it out. And humbly, we navigate, negotiate, and encourage, and bless one another. Always reminded of this. I close with this. Scripture says in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is he saying there? You're not the king of anything. There is one Lord, one faith, and we are to submit to him. And in submitting to him, we are to submit to one another humbly. God gives grace to the humble. You want God on your side? Then you need to bow yourself before God. And ultimately, we are to humble ourselves before one another. You want God on your team? You want the wisdom of God, the help of God, the strength of God, the grace of God to bless your life. You want lift in your life? You want joy and peace, comfort? If you want any of those things, understand, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. We know this to be true. And this is the secret to being the people of God that God would have us be. 
Let us submit to God together. And let us keep an eye on one another and help the elders do that more than any. May God give us grace in doing so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your care for us today. I love you. I'm thankful that you love me, that you're faithful to me, even, Lord, when I am not all I should be. I pray for your mercies upon me. pray your grace toward me and these. pray that you would help us to prosper in the pursuit of Christ. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.